0: I want to welcome up Angelo. Let's give him a warm uh, welcome. He's going to be speaking to us today. Oh, and also I'm going to welcome up Ola because I completely forgot the order. Sorry, Ola. Ola's going to do the reading for us.
1: Good morning, everyone. On the behest of uh, Angelo, I'll be taking the text this morning. Our text is from Mark chapter 9, from verses 14 to 29. And I'm reading from the New International Version of the Bible. Jesus heals a boy possessed by an impure spirit. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed, with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by, the, by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, he throws him into the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they couldn't. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they asked him, when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything, Is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked. Convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciple asked him privately, "Why couldn't we drive it out?" He replied, "This kind." can come out only by prayer. This is the reading of God's word.
0: Morning, everyone. <clears throat> Sorry, I'd, I'd forgotten how long that passage was, but thanks. Um, so there's a huge amount to unpack here. Okay, so this, we, we hear about this account here in Mark. It's also in Matthew, and it's also in Luke. So <clears throat> this isn't going to be a comprehensive sermon about all of it, I just want to focus mainly on verse 24. That is when the dad says to Jesus, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Now that sounds contradictory at first. I don't believe it is. I think it's like saying, I'm strong, but help me to be stronger. Or I'm good at maths, help me to be better at maths. If it's not contradictory, that tells us something very important about belief. What it tells us is that belief isn't an all or nothing endeavor. It's not either total or worthless. There are different degrees of belief. The way I see it, it's like petrol in in the tank of a car. So if you've got a full tank of petrol, if you've got a full tank of belief, you're on your way, you're on the journey. If you've got half a tank of petrol, half a tank of belief, you're still on the journey. Even if you've only got the tiniest amount of petrol in the tank, the tiniest amount of belief, you can still possibly get to where you need to go. So belief isn't all or nothing. There is, of course, people that don't believe. That's, that's a separate thing, that's the equi- equivalent of not having any petrol in the tank. We're not talking about that. Essentially, that's atheism. We're not talking about that today. We're talking about different degrees of belief as a Christian. So to say, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief, it's a huge statement of faith, while at the same time being an acknowledgement that our faith is not perfect. Now, as Christians, doubt is always going to exist for us. And it has to always exist for us. Because faith is a choice. We're given free will. That means we can choose to believe or choose not to believe. If that's the case, there's always going to be space for doubt. There has to be space for doubt. So we're always going to have questions. But saying to God, help me overcome my unbelief, we're saying, we trust God, that those questions have answers. Even if we don't know what they are, even if we can't possibly see how something that's happening could in any way be the will of God, we're saying to God, we, we trust, we're asking God to help us be content to not have all the answers. Everyone doubts. Okay, doubt is, is, is common. I don't think doubt is as much of a problem for us as Christians as apathy. If you doubt, you're questioning. You want to know the answer to the question. You want to know how things fit together, how this can be the will of God. You still care, essentially. Apathy, that's when you get to the point and you say, you know what, I've had enough with all of this. I don't care. I don't care what the answer might be. So to me, I think apathy is more of a trap than doubt is. Again, as I said, doubt is common. If you look at the world, if you look at the news, war, famine, murder, you can literally take out your smartphone now, you can find videos of of human depravity pretty quickly. It's very easy to look at the world and think, how can this possibly be what God wants at the moment? How can this possibly be the will of God? At the same time, there are arguments and counter-arguments about everything. Truth now is seen as subjective. There are things that have been true for for centuries, for for millennia, which are now just being thrown out of the window. We're saying, no, they, they, they don't apply anymore. They're not true anymore. So there's constant doubt about the official version of events, Subject, subjectivity, constant moving of the goalposts, okay? Everything is subjective. If enough people tell you that two plus two is seven, you're not necessarily going to believe it, but at some point you're going to start to wonder. You're going to start to waver just a little bit. There's an author called Bobby Conway, and he, 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 he talks about this concept that doubt is directional. It's not just this neutral thing that exists. You can either doubt towards something, or you can doubt away from it. As Christians, when we doubt, we doubt towards God, not away from Him. Turning again to the story here, Let's look at the dad, okay? Now, I, wanna, I, wanna, I want you to imagine his frame of mind. Now, as I said, this appears in Mark, Matthew, and Luke. In Luke, we're told this is his only son. So this is his only child. We don't know how long he's been like this. We know since childhood. If, the, if, the, if, if he's 14 years old, and if it started when he was four, that's 10 years. So a decade, potentially, of this happening. His son is possessed by a spirit who is trying to kill him. We don't know how far the man's traveled to get help. We don't know what else he's tried. We do know that even the disciples, he's come to the disciples, and even they can't help him. As I've said before, emotion trumps intellect every time. So this man's emotions would be sky high. And we know that because he almost insults Jesus. He's so desperate for help that at one point he says, If you can do anything. Now, can you imagine praying to God and saying you need help with something? Then say, Oh, can you? If you can, if you're able to. If my wife needed help opening a jar and she said, I can't do this, open it if you can. (laughs) I probably wouldn't do it on principle. I just say, well, you know, me if you can. Look at these arms. Look at this. <laughs> I, I went to the gym twice in the 90s. Um, so he's almost, it's, it's almost an insult. But he is in the same position that a lot of us are in. He wants to express his faith. But at the same time, he wants to be completely honest with God. Which is that he might not have as much faith as he should. At the end of this account in Matthew, Jesus says to the disciples, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. So our faith, even in the midst of suffering, in fact, maybe even especially in the midst of suffering, it needs to be as big as a mustard seed to move mountains. And sometimes, that's all it might feel like. You know, we know the theology. We can quote, um, I quote Tim Keller all the time, C.S. Lewis. We we, we, we know what we're supposed to be thinking. We know what we're supposed to do when disaster strikes. And that's great. When it's theoretical, that's great. When you're sitting at home, and your family are with you, and everyone's warm and well-fed, and everyone's comfortable, and you've got, you know, scriptures on the wall, that's amazing. That's amazing, but when you're in the trenches, when something comes out of nowhere, that's when you don't necessarily know how you're going to make it through the next few minutes, and that's when we do what this this father here does. You hold on to that mustard seed of faith, and you say, I believe in you, but this hurts. This is painful. I can't think straight. My heart's broken. I believe, but the way my body is responding tells me I need to believe more. Help me to believe more. Help me to overcome my flesh. Help my unbelief. Even if you are hanging on by the tiniest thread, we're told in Joshua 23.8, hold fast to the Lord your God. We need to hold fast to the Lord your God. That's what we need to do. But as I've said before, we're not the only ones doing the holding. And we need to remember that. In Ephesians, in Ephesians, we're told that our, our battle is not against flesh and blood. I don't particularly like over-spiritualizing everything, but I do believe that there are spiritual attacks. And I believe that some of these are quite insidious. And one of them, I consider it basically a trick, which is if you feel a little bit of unbelief, if you feel that your faith is slightly shaky, that you suddenly think, well, that's it then. I must not be a Christian. If I was really a Christian, I wouldn't be feeling like this. Again, that's thinking, we're we're, we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It reminds me of of dieting, if you're dieting and you go over your calories, you've got a choice to make. You can either just continue dieting or you can say, well, I've had, you know, I may as well have the other pack of bacon. You know, (laughs) it's a trick. You don't need to do that. It doesn't mean all is lost. Having your faith shaken, it doesn't mean you're not a Christian. The other day, uh, a few weeks ago now, we had water pressure problems, right? And this was um, was the day before my son was going to go back to school, my wife was going to go back into the office, I was going back to work. Like, kind of life was starting again after the holidays the next day. So, you know, having water in the house would be actually quite nice. Um, So anyway, we had water pressure problems and I was panicking. Was I still a Christian? Yeah. Did I still believe in God? Yes, I did. Was I also panicking? Yes, I was. I was a Christian who was panicking. I still believed. If I didn't, I wouldn't have been asking God for help because I wouldn't believe that he could. Sometimes we think we need to hide these kind of shaken moments of faith. Looking at Jesus on the cross... When Jesus was on the cross, he suffered. He he cried out in agony and in pain and in anguish. He didn't pretend he wasn't suffering. If Jesus is our model of how we should be, why would we think that when we suffer, we should pretend it's not happening? Jesus literally asked God why he had forsaken him. Why would we sometimes not ask similar questions? Now, there's a massive caveat to this. When Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was talking to God. When Job railed against God, he was talking to God. It's the whole thing about doubting toward God. It's okay to bring our shaken faith or our, 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 our sufferings, our unbelief, our inadequacies, our shortcomings, whatever you want to call them, it's okay to bring that to God, but that's what we need to do. We need to take it to God. We need to doubt toward him, not away from him. So turning again to this account, not only was the man not punished for being honest with Jesus, he was also rewarded He got the thing that he needed, which was healing for his son. So this tells us we should be confessing our own unbelief to God. We're not going to be punished for that. We might not necessarily be rewarded for that, but it's something we're able to do. We can take that to God. It also tells us we can be fully honest with God. And quite frankly, there's no reason not to be. God knows us already. He knows our our strengths, our failures. Nothing's a surprise. God is not distant or uncaring. He, He hears our prayers and he answers our prayers. Again, looking again at this account, Jesus doesn't just heal the son. He heals the father. He's healing him of his unbelief. He's teaching him. The man learned that it's not about the size of his faith. He just needed enough faith in Almighty God, who was the only one who could heal his son. So this is very much a lesson for us. It's not about the size of our faith. It's not about how hard we, we will things to happen. And sometimes I think we, we think we need to have a huge amount of faith for huge things, but it's not about how big our faith is. It's about how big God is God's power is, comp- is, is 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 not in any way dependent on us God's power is it always has been it always will be We don't need to try to believe harder or will things to happen that that leans over into that kind of law of attraction territory where where people believe that you know if you put your your if you tell the universe what you want so it will come come back to you if you if you send out positive enough energy That same energy will come back to you. I don't care. What Oprah Winfrey says That's not true <clears throat> Another thing this tells us this account is that Our faith comes from God Now I'm not going to pretend that I completely understand this um, because I don't, and um, I mean, there's, you know, theologians have kind of wrestled with this um, for centuries. It, uh, you know, it, I think it's sufficient here to say that it is somehow God's work in our lives that enables us to have faith. So our faith literally comes from God. Jesus gives us the example in Luke, right, Luke 22. Before Peter denies Jesus three times... Jesus says to Peter that he's prayed for him, that his faith may not fail. So Jesus prays for Peter's faith to be sustained even through the sin of denying him three times, which Peter then goes on to do. So Jesus knows that God is the one who gives faith. So again, if Jesus is our model of how we should be, why would we not pray in the same way? that God will sustain our faith, that God will sustain the faith of others. Now, at one point, Jesus says to, uh, to, to the dad, everything is possible for those who believe. I think sometimes this is misunderstood. It's a bit like Philippians 4:13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It doesn't mean we can do anything. It doesn't mean as long as we believe, we can do whatever we want, and whatever we want will happen. To me, it's more of a statement that if we believe, then all things are possible. But if we don't believe, then they'll be impossible. The only example that comes to mind is if I say to my son, tidy up or you can't watch TV. He'll say to me, okay, so if I tidy up, can I watch TV? And I always say the same thing. If you tidy up, you might be able to watch TV. (laughs) If you don't tidy up, you definitely won't. You see, the distinction there is, I don't believe Jesus is saying that if we just believe, then then whatever we want to happen will happen. I think it's the other way around. Nothing is possible for those who don't believe. So there's two other areas of belief that are addressed here. The first is the disciples' unbelief. The disciples could not cast out the Spirit. Why? Did they not believe enough? They ask Jesus, and he says this type of spirit only comes out through prayer. What does that mean? Did they not pray? Did they not pray enough? We don't know. But it seems what, what one of the kind of uh, commonly considered explanations for this is, well, actually, not that they didn't pray enough, but they didn't pray at all. They'd done this a hundred times. We, we, we see it earlier. They'd, they'd, they'd cast out spirits a hundred times. Maybe they didn't pray. Maybe they were relying on their own strength, their own words. Maybe they'd done it so many times they'd, they, they forgot that actually God is the one who gives them the power to do this. And we can all be guilty of this. In itself, this is a form of unbelief. Relying on ourselves. You need to do something, or there's a problem to solve, and you just get on with it. You don't go to God first. You don't make a conscious decision to reject God, but in practice, you're not acknowledging Him. You're not acknowledging His power in your life. You're not acknowledging the uh, things he might give you or show you to solve that problem. So trying to do things in our own strength, overthinking things, overanalyzing things, it's a form of unbelief. I do this all the time. And I don't mean, you know, oh, I used to do it and now I see the error of my ways and I stop doing it. I do it all the time. I was doing it last week. My wife pointed it out to me. I was doing this last week. I don't think there's anything wrong with using your mind, the mind that God has given you to solve problems. But I do think, as soon as that crosses over into obsessively trying to solve every problem yourself and not going to God at all, that's when it becomes a problem. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a theologian, he once said that God always gives us what we need, but he never gives it to us in advance. Otherwise, we'd rely on ourselves rather than relying on him. If God gave us everything we needed to solve every problem that we're ever going to encounter in life, I wonder how quickly we would stop going to him. And I wonder at what point we would forget that he was the one that gave us those abilities in the first place. Now, the second area of belief here—it's a question of belief for us as, as 21st-century people reading this passage. The boy, as described here, could potentially be suffering from epilepsy. So, screaming, foaming at the mouth, lack of speech, falling, rigidity. We can read that and we can say, well, he wasn't possessed. There are a number of counter arguments to this. So firstly, in in Matthew, a distinction is made between people who are possessed and people with epilepsy. So we know we're not talking about kind of backward people who didn't have any understanding of this. The disciples recognized the differences. They could differentiate one from the other. So it's not simply a case that they were mistaken. Secondly, coming back to the idea of spiritual attack, why would spiritual forces not use pre-existing conditions to attack somebody? They might happen at the worst possible time, or they might be exacerbated in some way. If you have migraines and you're supposed to be helping at church, and every single time you're supposed to be helping at church, you have a debilitating migraine and you can't make it in. Yes, it's a pre-existing condition, but at what point would you say, well, the timing of this seems interesting? The severity of this migraine seems interesting. So just because something is a pre-existing condition, it doesn't mean it can't be used against a believer. When I was preparing my last sermon, my son started to get ill with something that he hadn't had for about three months. And then he had it over and over and over and over again. And I remember me and my wife saying, you know, it feels like a spiritual attack. And I was saying, yeah, okay, but it must be based in something. There must be some medical reason. There must be some science behind this. There must be something biological behind this. And maybe there was. And maybe there is in this situation. But a pre-existing condition that happened more frequently than usual, and at times where where it inflicted a lot of harm, can still be used against believers. Third argument, if it was epilepsy and nothing to do with evil spirits, why would it suddenly happen as soon as the boy saw Jesus? Why would it end when Jesus told the spirit to go? Why would the boy no longer be mute? Does does epilepsy even cause muteness? I don't know. But the most important argument here is that Luke and Matthew call it a demon. Mark calls it an impure spirit. Jesus casts it out in the same way he casts out every other demon. So in short, the Bible says it was a demon. Therefore, that's what it was. You can have the other arguments, you can have the other, that's great, but ultimately, as Christians, this is where our belief lies. If the Bible says something, we can question it, we can go back and forth, but we shouldn't. So it's a question of belief for us here. So just a couple more points. I believe that this account, this story, gives us encouragement for unanswered prayer. Okay, because we see here a seemingly impossible situation. So it's been going on, as, as, as we know, it's been going on since childhood. Even the disciples couldn't help. But Jesus healed the boy with a word. So this tells us that God can fix anything in an instant. We know that he can, which means when he doesn't, there must be a reason for it. It's nothing to do with his power being limited. Even if, like I said, even if we can't possibly imagine what the reason could be, there must be a reason that that thing isn't being fixed, that that person wasn't healed or isn't being healed. And it also means if and when the time is right, God can fix it with a word. And that'll be it. Possibly years of struggle, years of suffering. Done. It's fixed. It also reminds us that we're not in control. On its own, that's quite a terrifying sentence. The difference for us is we know that God is in control. So the next point about this, um, about this account, I think it models to us how we should approach all our shortcomings, not just unbelief. So like the man here, we need to acknowledge our inadequacies, and we need to take them to God and ask him to help us with them. So in the same way the man says, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief, We need to ask God to help us overcome our unbeliefs, our addictions, not just physical addictions, not just, you know, um, drugs, alcohol, cigarettes. I mean, you know, there are psychological addictions. There are things, gossip, anger, pornography. You know, some people want to put everyone else down and, you know, in order to kind of lift themselves up. We can all identify with this because as Christians, we already know that we need God's grace. We know that we can't save ourselves. We know this already. So we rely on God for that every day. Why would we not then rely on him to help us with everything else that we struggle with? Not just shaken faith, but like I said, sins that we commit, sometimes repeatedly, We can ask God for what we need. That's a huge takeaway from this story. We can ask God for what we need, whether it's more faith, whether it's strength to resist temptation, more willingness to obey, whatever it is, we are free to do that. And as Christians, we know that our faith, our obedience is going to fall short in some way. It already has. It will continue to. We can't do it in our own strength, and we can't do it in our own faith. Another speech that uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer gave, he said, he was addressing um, a youth audience, and he said to them, every morning in your life, the same prayer will be necessary. I believe, dear Lord, help my unbelief. There's a lot there, and I think it'd be good if we take, take some time just to be still, to pray if you want to, as I, as I always say, if you want to close your eyes, you can, if you want to stand, if you can, sit down, you know, whatever's most comfortable for you. But I think it would be good to have some time to, to think about unbelief in our own life to literally bring it now to God. To bring other things to God, other things that we want to confess that we need help with. Or to ask God to show you, or to show us any hidden unbelief like self-reliance, anything hidden that we might not even be aware of. So let's just take some time now
2: Yes, Jesus, we just thank you for this morning, Lord. Thank you for showing us the areas in our life where we aren't believing in you fully, Lord Jesus. But Lord, as we go out this morning, Father, we say we believe. Help our unbelief, Lord Jesus, but we believe, Father. Help us lean into you this week, Lord Jesus, and help us to step out boldly in the belief of you, Father. Show us those people to speak to, those people that need to hear who you are, everything that you do, Lord Jesus, everything that you've done, Father. Help us be bold witnesses of, to testify you, Father, to this community, to our workplaces, to our families, Lord Jesus. Father, be glorified this week, Lord. In your holy name, Amen. Thank you so much, Sean, and thank you so much for coming this morning. Just a quick reminder, tonight we have got our evening service at 6 till 7, and Friday night we've got our community meal, and we're looking forward to seeing lots of you there. Um, And that starts at 6.30, I think. Um, Thank you. We'll see you guys soon.